You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. And today's scripture reading is from Philippians 4, verse 2 to 9. So you can look to the screen or open your Bibles. I entreat you, O dear, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Danelle. Hi, uh, my name is Dan, and I am an assistant pastor here at RHC. Uh, it's such a joy to be able to uh, bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, before we begin our text in Philippians 4, would you join with me um, in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you that you love us, Lord, and we see your love on the cross as you redeemed us from our sin. Lord, we pray that even as uh, many of us continue to try to live out our new identities as your sons and daughters, even as we stumble and struggle, help us, O Lord, to do so uh, in our union with you, to know that your love doesn't stop just at the cross, but it goes on and on. Help us, Lord, to receive this this morning. We pray, O Lord, that you would open your word to us as you open us to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I recently came across this article written by Joni Erickson Tada, and if you're not familiar with her work, she is a noted Christian uh, writer. And what she has written on about suffering has deeply encouraged me in my own suffering. So if you don't know about her, she uh, suffers from quadriplegia due to an accident in 1967. And after injuring her spinal cord, Erickson Tada has uh, lived paralyzed below her neck for the past few decades. Erickson Tada knows what it's like to encounter suffering. In the article she wrote two weeks ago, Erickson Tada shared how in the spring of last year, 2023, she was hospitalized for 21 days due to pneumonia. And then in the summer, she went back into the hospital because she developed a second respiratory infection. But that wasn't the worst. All this time being bedridden in a hospital left um, her left arm useless. So over time, she couldn't even use her left arm. How bad was your 2023? For Erickson Tada, it was a year of losses. And she writes, my flesh is wasting away, and who would blame me if I complained? Would you complain if you were in his situation? I know I would. 
In fact, I complain a lot more when I suffer a lot less. Why? Because even though scripture is very clear that if you want to live a godly life, you will undergo persecution and suffering. Even though Paul writes Philippians in, in a prison cell, languishing alone, I am not only surprised when I encounter suffering. Sometimes I even become resentful. Why? Because I struggle to put off my mindset that if I put the work in to please God, He must bless me. Because deep down, I still believe that God blesses those who please Him, but He curses those who fail Him. And when I believe that I've been a good Christian, when I've hit the mark and I suffer, I begin to grumble. My heart begins to murmur, what have I done to deserve this? How can so-and-so call himself or herself a Christian and yet treat me this way? Look at what I've done for you, God. Look at what I've given up. And yet you still don't give me what I've prayed to you for. This is not fair. Friends, do we complain when we suffer? We respond to suffering this way because fundamentally, we believe we have a right to complain. We complain because our culture tells us that suffering is, um, is not normal, that suffering should be avoided, that you only suffer because you didn't do the right thing. This attitude mirrors more the principles of our world and less of the kingdom of heaven. But Erickson Tada goes on to write, did I have a right to complain? Actually, I possess no real rights. Why? Because when Erickson Tada, when you, when I put our faith in Jesus, when we believe that the Son of God died on a criminal's cross, not for his sins, but for our sins, and when we call him not just Savior, but Lord, friends, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We give up our rights. God redeems us by substitution. He gives himself for our sin. But he sanctifies us. He changes us by association, by giving himself to us. We are one in Christ. And he is the Lord of our lives. If you want to be a Christian, if you say you follow Jesus, you will encounter suffering. Why? Because our God suffered The big idea of my sermon today is this. God changes us when we take on the mind of Christ in suffering. In other words, our passage today tells us in Philippians 4 that Christian, when you encounter suffering, think different. Think different. Don't think the way that the world thinks, but take on the mind of Christ out of your union with Christ. And my two points um, today is what taking the mind of Christ looks like in suffering, and number two, how we can take on the mind of Christ in suffering. Because even though we do not know why there is suffering in the world, what the purpose of suffering is, as a Christian, Scripture is very clear that God uses suffering to make us more like Christ when we take on His mindset, His perspective. 
Now, before we jump into our text, we need to spend some time, a short time, talking about what having the mind of Christ looks like and why it matters. Remember last week, we read that we are citizens of heaven, and so we live out our lives here on earth out of not our worldly citizenship, but our heavenly citizenship. We're called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Philippians 1.27, and this involves taking on the mind of Christ. What is this mind of Christ? It is having a gospel-centered disposition. It is forming a new habitual way of thinking based on who Christ is and what he has done and who we are in him. It is shedding off the old way of thinking, what our education has told us, what our history has educated us on, and saturating our minds, building our identity, perceiving reality itself, based out of, based out of scripture. It is a call to think different about ourselves, our situations, and one another. And I wanna be straight with you. Thinking this way is not easy. In fact, it takes a whole lifetime to think different, especially when suffering comes. I heard a preacher once said that living this way, thinking this way is akin to a slave who becomes a citizen. This person becomes a free man overnight and all the rights of being a citizen is bestowed to him. But when he lives his life, he still struggles. Am I really free? Am I, can I really vote now? And do I have like, the rights of belonging to this nation? Everything is fine until he encounters suffering. The rubber hits the road when he meets somebody who treats him like a slave, who treats him badly, disrespects him. In that moment, will this man act out of his new identity as a citizen or fall back to his old identity as a slave? Do we likewise say that we are sons and daughters of the Most High, but yet functionally relate to God in heaven, God in heaven like slaves? Do we say that we believe the gospel, but yet see God more of an absent father or a domineering boss? Do we savor the gospel riches we have in Christ? Or are we still trying on our own strength to live up, live up to our perceived expectations of God? Friends, God is not against us. In fact, He works all things for the good of those who love Him, especially in our suffering. And why does this matter? Because when we take on the mindset of Christ, we become more like Jesus. We become more like Paul. It is interesting to see that in our passage, Paul, in this final chapter, gives a number of imperatives, commands, instructions to the church to think different in their suffering, to think different in their discouragement, to think different in church politics, to think different when facing the anxiety of living in the first century. He calls them to see their suffering with the mindset of Christ so that they will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And the purpose of this is that we are changed. And not only that, the gospel is beautiful, evident, worth suffering for. So if you're excited like I am, uh, let's jump in to our first point. What taking the mind of Christ looks like in suffering. Verse 4. The first thing is to rejoice in the Lord always. You see, the mark of a Christian 
has to be joy. In verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't hear that straight, what does he say next? Again, I will say, rejoice. And what we have here is an imperative, an instruction, a command. This isn't good opinion on how to live a better life. This is not the Christian perspective to happiness. This is something that we have to do. And when do we rejoice? Do we rejoice when we get that promotion at work? Do we rejoice when we finally get married to the love of our lives? Do we um, rejoice when we get that slot to get our BTO or our uh, kids get into our dream primary school? No, we are called to rejoice always. To rejoice when we are suffering, to rejoice when we have anxiety, to rejoice when we are lonely and feel abandoned. And I think it's important to note that while happiness, what our culture chases after, is dependent on our circumstances, joy, Christian joy, is independent of our circumstances. Joy is a buoyancy. It is like a life jacket that you wear to stay above the waters even as the storm clouds gather. And even as the water begins to get choppier, you're still afloat. And then we see this mindset, this disposition in the apostle himself. You know, if you've been studying Philippians, you cannot help but notice how Paul overflows with joy. Joy language is used 16 times in this letter. But what is more surprising is that when we realize that Paul is writing this letter out of a prison cell. Would you be rejoicing for the spiritual progress of the church and the proclamation of the gospel if you are languishing alone in jail after a lifelong of faithful service to God? And yet Paul rejoices. And not only that, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I think that Paul can rejoice this way independent of his circumstances because he has found a greater satisfaction. I think C.S. Lewis is right, that we don't rejoice this way because it's not a matter of our desires being too big but too small. We are too easily pleased. That we find our satisfaction, security, and significance in pleasure, ambition, worldly things that are inherently fragile, temporal, when the offer of eternal life and joy is given to us in Christ. You want to beat Paul up for his faith? Paul rejoices because he can suffer and become more like Christ. You want to throw the apostle into prison? Paul rejoices because now he gets a captive audience. You want to threaten this man with death? Paul rejoices because he knows he will attain resurrection from the dead. And Paul tells us, have this mindset. Rejoice. Rejoice. And isn't this what we all want when we become Christians? Don't we want to have this buoyancy, this poise to face anything life throws at us? The solution, friends, is not to look to ourselves, what we have, our circumstances. It's to look to Christ, what He has done, who, who we are in Him, and how He loves us. We can rejoice always because we, can re we do so in Christ. So that's the first thing, rejoice. The second thing is we are to be reasonable. 
to unreasonable people. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reasonable or gentleness here comes from the Greek word epikes, and it's an attitude of kindness, restraint, when the expected response would be retaliation. What this means is, is that if you have a disagreement with somebody, and you have the moral high ground, you have the facts, and you're in the right, and you have the ability to uh, smash that person with facts, you don't, you are reasonable, you are gentle, you're kind. You take on the mindset of Christ, which Paul calls earlier in, in chapter 2, to in humility, consider the, the good of not just yourself, but of other people, to consider other people more significant than yourselves. And when the Philippians read this, it must have stung. Because Paul doesn't say, be reasonable with your loved ones. Be reasonable with your very cute children. Be reasonable with those people you respect who have a direct influence on your well-being in life. Who does Paul say be reasonable to? Everyone. And for the Philippians, they were being persecuted. Like the apostle, they were being flogged, beaten, thrown into prison. Their property was being confiscated. And yet, Paul tells them, be reasonable, be meek, hold back in your dealings with them. But we see that this relational challenge wasn't just prevalent outside of the church, but inside as well. Look with me to verse 2 of Philippians 4. I entreat Eudoia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We see the apostle here employing the very rare power move of naming uh, and not shaming uh, two prominent church leaders in Philippi. And he tells them to agree in the Lord. And not only that, he goes on to say in verse 3, Yes, I, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And what Paul is doing here is he is not just calling these two women to agree in the Lord, but he is notifying the entire church. Help them. And what is so fascinating about the Greek term to agree in the Lord is when you read it in the original language, it is translated to think in Christ. How do we be reasonable when we take on the mindset of Christ who was reasonable to unreasonable sinners like ourselves, who has showed restraint on the cross and continues to show restraint to us even though we are hard-hearted, self-centered, vindictive people. And we can do this because of who we are in Christ. Friends, I, I need to confess that this is not easy. But we can do it because if you look at the second part of verse 5, what does it say? We, we can be reasonable to everyone because the Lord is near. Do you realize that if you are struggling in a relationship right now, that you are not alone? That if you feel small and insignificant, that God sees? Do you know that you don't have to find it within yourself to fix it? That the Lord is close to His people. 
And I think we need to hear this today. That when we are weak and that we are struggling with our own sin, it doesn't depend on us alone to solve all these relational challenges. You will suffer. You will have challenges when you love other people. But the good news is that we are united in Christ. That we are with Him. But more than that, He is with us. And, you know, this is something I continue to struggle with. And one significant episode in my life a few years ago was that I had some challenges with another Christian. And that person was fairly direct with me to uh, tell me what I had done wrong. And I felt that I couldn't be uh, as direct to that person. But I, was, I really struggled because I felt that a lot of what was said to me wasn't fair. So what did I do? I reached out to a few older and wiser Christians and I asked them, do you have any advice on how I can continue to, to love uh, this person even though I'm feeling all, all these negative emotions? And I'll never forget what my friend told me. That person said, Dan, your job is to love, to forgive, and pray for that person. But it is God's job to deal with that person. And I love that. Because in that moment, the weight just lifted. I, yes, I still struggle. Yes, I, I, you know, I, I'm not very good at letting go. But I'm not alone. We are not alone, friends. That it doesn't fall on our shoulders to build the church. God is building His church because He is near to His people. And I want to encourage us that even as we struggle, we can do it. Maybe not very well, but definitely in faith because we are united in Christ. So we see that we are to rejoice always. Secondly, we are to be reasonable to everyone. And number three, verses six to seven, we are to respond to our, our anxieties with prayer. Do you struggle with anxiety today? Are you worried about your life and your future? Well, if you do, you are not very different from the Philippians. Paul tells the Philippians in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything because they were anxious about everything. These, this was a persecuted community. They were the unseen. And it was very stressful, not just to be a Christian in those times, but to just exist in the first century. You know, the lifespan was very short. Life was not easy. And for us in Singapore, aren't we well acquainted with anxiety and worry as well? You know, when you enter into the school system, your parents are worried whether you can excel uh, and, or maybe even just to keep up. Why? Because what's at the end of the journey is a good university and a great job. And then when you start working, once, once you get that, that very important first job, you begin to worry, am I progressing uh, in line with my peers? Am I earning enough? And say, even if you are really doing a, an amazing job in, in your career, you, you worry, can I keep this up? Is the cost that I am inflicting on my family, my personal life, worth it? Is this sustainable? And it doesn't matter what season in life you are in. Aren't we all anxious about the rising cost of living, the uncertainty of the future, our health that seems to waste away with each passing year? Where does this anxiety stem from? Psychologist uh, Bruce Tropita and David Barlow linked anxiety and worry to the sense of a loss of control. 
the Philippians were anxious because they had no control over their persecutors and their situation. And likewise, today, you and I are anxious because we don't feel that we have control over what matters most in our lives. And how do we respond to this anxiety? The world tells us, turn inwards and find the solution within. The reason that you're not in control is because you have not done enough. You need to do more self-care, you need to read more books, you need to have better relationships, you need to have that strength of character so that you can power through and control your external circumstances. The only thing holding us back is the right tools, information, maybe even the right therapist to help us overcome our anxiety. But how is the Christian with the mind of Christ, how is he or she to respond to the reality of anxiety? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, which is another uh, word for prayer, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You know, I've been very encouraged by the explosion of counseling and therapy because I think it's important to talk about mental health. And I think our society is moving in the right direction in saying that if something is bothering you, talk to somebody about it. It will help you to process and understand. But friends, as Christians, we have so much more. Yes, we can talk to our friends. Yes, we can talk to a counselor. But Paul tells us, talk to God. Don't just talk to God about the good things. Don't just talk to God when you're in a crisis. What does Paul tell us? But in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God is not an absent father who doesn't care about what you're going through this morning. God is not too in the zone to be interrupted by your seemingly unimportant request. He is near. He is with us. He loves you. This is what having the mindset of Christ means. That we are united in Christ. That everything that Jesus has won on the cross is ours. We can come to God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of prayer. I'm very encouraged that RHC we are growing in prayer. But the one thing that I want to highlight this morning is that when we pray, God may not change your circumstances, but He will change your perspective. We are changed when we pray because when we pray, we take our eyes away from ourselves, our lack, our circumstances, our situation, and we turn it heavenward to Christ. Prayer protests against the world's lie that we are in control of our lives that we belong to ourselves. Prayer is an act of surrender, acknowledging not only the reality of our limitations, but acknowledging the limitlessness of God. And when we present all our requests to God, when we acknowledge our weakness and lack and come to Him, we give Him, we let Him be Lord in our lives. We relate to Him not as slaves or employees or strangers, but as sons and daughters. And Paul goes on to say in verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And I love the analogy here that he uses. It's kind of like a Roman centurion who's standing guard. He goes on to say, well, guard your hearts, 
your minds, your whole personhood in Christ Jesus. How is this peace um, greater than our understanding? I think it's because behind all our anxiety, behind our need for control, behind our multiple contingency plans, is a belief that if we um, plan enough, if we try hard enough, then we can have the peace we long for by controlling our external situation. But Paul is saying here that when you pray and you acknowledge that you can't do it, God's peace is even greater because it guards your hearts and mind. The very thing that we long for, even if we don't understand. You know, I experienced this in a very deep way when um, I moved to San Francisco with uh, Sarah, my wife, in 2018. And this was after a few months where we were settling in. And um, at that point, uh, RHC said that if you were to move with your family to Louisville, Kentucky, from San Francisco, uh, we would um, support your seminary uh, education. And, you know, I was excited, but also, I was also kind of anxious because I was on a dependent visa. We had moved across the world for my wife's career in SF. And now God was calling us to move to Louisville, Kentucky. What was going to happen to uh, Sarah's career? How are we going to pay for everything? We want to have kids. I was filled with anxiety about the future, even as I wanted to follow Christ. And so during those months, I still remember in the Starbucks, I felt uh, very convicted to pray. Not just to pray passively, but to pray specifically for big things. I was very encouraged by the parable of the um, persistent widow, if you remember. And this widow uh, needs justice, but her village judge is unjust, so he doesn't give it to her. But because she's badgering him every single day, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice, he relents, he says, I've had enough. Go, you know, I'll give you the justice you, you require. And the kicker comes at the end of the parable. Jesus doesn't say, you know, see whether, I will, see whether God will give you um, the, requ the, the request that you ask for. But he ends the parable by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find such faith? It's not a matter of whether God will listen to your prayers or answer your prayers. It's whether we have the faith to respond to our anxieties with prayer. And God may not always change your circumstances, but He'll change your heart. He gave me a deep peace and confidence to go ahead <laughs> without a plan. And in this situation, He changed our circumstances. The day I arrived in Louisville, Kentucky, before Sarah came, her company signed a contract with one of the largest insurance companies based out of the Midwest. And where was their head office located? in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And just like that, God gave my wife a job. And I'm not saying that this is the norm. I'm not saying that, you know, if this, this doesn't happen, then there's something wrong with your prayers. But I'm saying that prior to the external change in circumstance, God did a deep work in my heart to always, always pray because He listens, especially when we are struggling with anxiety. And so we see that taking the mindset of Christ in our suffering means three things, that we rejoice in the Lord always, that we are reasonable uh, to all, and that three, we can respond to our anxieties with prayer. And how do we do it? Real quick, uh, if we look at verses um, 8 to 9, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think. Think about these things. What Paul is saying is that if you want to think different, you need to think about different things. Think about the gospel. Think about the character of God. Think about the faithfulness of God. Think about who we are as citizens of God. Stop thinking about, or try to stop thinking about what our society tells us about ourselves, what the definition of happiness is on our earth. We need to saturate our minds with scripture, with doctrine, with the goodness of God. Because when we think different, we'll see in verse 9 that we begin to live differently as well. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so I've said a lot about our union in Christ. I've said a lot about how to respond to suffering with the mindset of Christ. And you might be thinking, you know, Dan, this sounds really good. In fact, I believe you. <laughs> but I've been a Christian for a long time, and I still struggle with discouragement. You know, I've tried to pray, but God doesn't seem to answer my prayers. You know, I can go through my devotion, but when I meet a difficult colleague, <laughs> you know, everything goes off the table. I want to experience this. I want to live this out. But as hard as I try, I still fail. You know, when Paul tells the Philippians to take on the mind of Christ in chapter 2, verse 5, he doesn't follow up that command with, you know, these are the 10 steps to uh, Christian maturity, or it doesn't say, like, stop it and try harder. What does the apostle do? He turns their gaze away from themselves, up to heaven, to Christ, who he is, what he has done for us. And you know, we are all like that slave trying to live out our new identity as citizens of heaven. But we must remember, friends, that the fact that we are struggling is only because the king of heaven went the opposite direction. This king took on a new identity, our humanity. He, didn't he gave up his rights to be a servant. And he chose not to complain, but willingly suffered to go to the cross so that he could redeem us from our sin and sanctify us to become citizens of heaven. Do you see what Christ has done for you and me? His love doesn't just stop at the cross and then now you just have to figure this Christian life on your own. He saves us by giving himself to us, but he sanctifies us, he changes us by giving himself to us. We are united in Christ. If Jesus did so much to save us, wouldn't you, think, wouldn't you think it would be a bit silly if he didn't give us so much more to help us become who he has called us to be? Friends, don't live the Christian life on your own strength. It is the evil one's strategy to discourage you, to isolate you when you fail. Look to the cross. Lean into your union with Christ. And we see this in Philippians 4 as well, that every command, every imperative that Paul calls the Philippians to do, 
He, does, he calls them to do it in Christ. Verse 2, I entreat Eudoya and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Rejoice where? In the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is at hand. Pray to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you see, friends, that God is actively working in our lives right now through our union with Him? And this is how God changes us when we take on the mind of Christ in our suffering. It is akin to what Paul means when he declares in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's apt to close um, my sermon with um, another quote from Joni Erickson Tada. And, you know, for someone who has uh, suffered for many, many years, what I've learned from her example of taking on the mind of Christ is that suffering is not an obstacle, it's not an obstacle we must power through in order to get into a better place with God. But sometimes, for some of us, suffering is the point where we actually experience our union with Christ in a much deeper way. She writes, Even in my life, now it's like a sheepdog snapping at my heels. She's talking about suffering, driving me down the road to Calvary, where otherwise I might not naturally be inclined to go. He's the one who takes suffering like a jackhammer and breaks apart my rocks of resistance. He takes the chisel of the pain and the bite of hardship and chips away at my pride. And then we are driven to the cross by the overwhelming conviction that we just ain't got nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go but to the cross. And this is how suffering aids us. Why? Because nobody is naturally drawn to the cross. Our flesh is not inclined to go there. Our human instincts do not lead us there. But God shares his joy on his own terms. And those terms call for us to, in some measure, suffer as his precious son suffered when he was here on earth and the union or sweetness of intimacy with the savior just can't be beat we don't know why there is suffering in the world but for the christian sometimes often it is an invitation to experience our union with christ in a deeper way because our savior suffered for us in order to save us and so, friends, that's how we can respond to suffering and rejoicing in being reasonable to all and in responding to our uh, anxiety in prayer because Jesus meets us in our suffering and he helps us to think different in him so that we'll be transformed and the gospel be made beautiful to everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are with us in our suffering. Lord, we uh, confess that it is not easy to have a heavenly mindset to respond with such poise and buoyancy. But we thank you that we're not alone. And oh Lord, as you've given up so much for us on the cross to redeem us, would you please give us so much more now in our present time of need as we try to follow you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we are united in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. 
You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg. 